If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Acts 2, 42 through 47. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one provided for you right there in the back of the pew in front of you. Uh, it is the shorter, dark brown books there in the rack. And you'll find this on page 772 or the very bottom of page 811, depending on which printing of that you have. 7, 772 or 811. It's Acts 2, 42 through 47. And we're continuing through our study of the book of Acts in a series called Beyond. So we're orienting our minds and hearts to be a church that lives beyond Sunday, beyond the walls, and beyond the borders. And inspired by the first century church in Acts, and by Jesus himself, who said in Acts 1.8 to the disciples that when they received the Holy Spirit, they would receive power and they would be his witnesses locally, regionally, and to the ends of the earth. And so to this day in the church, we sometimes send people to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, to particular places. And we're called even individually to be witnesses, right? That's part of the message here is that we're, we're kind of positioning ourselves, equipping ourselves, orienting ourselves to live on mission all the time in our own Jerusalem here. But not only do we send individuals and not only do we witness individually, but the Christian community corporately is to bear witness to Jesus as well. You know, we don't often in America, because we're so individualistic just by nature, who we are in our country, we don't um, as readily or as often think about the corporate nature of the church, and particularly the corporate witness of the church. And what does that look like? What would that look like in action? Well, uh, at different times, there are sort of highlights. There are times when the Christian community really shines in particular places, and one vivid example took place among the Amish community several years ago where their radical forgiveness following a school shooting made a lasting impression on people all over the country. Some of you may remember that. I'm going to read an excerpt from a Washington Post article uh, that says that the simple, quiet rural life that Terry Roberts knew shattered on October 2nd, 2006, when her oldest son, Charles Carl Roberts IV, walked into a one-room Amish schoolhouse on a clear, unseasonably warm Monday morning. The 32-year-old husband and father of three young children ordered the boys and adults to leave, tied up 10 little girls between the ages of 6 and 13, and shot them killing five and injuring the others before killing himself. This mother's husband, the killer's father, thought they'd have to move far away. He knew what people thought of parents, of mass murderers. He believed they'd be ostracized in their community, blamed for not knowing the evil their child was capable of. But in the hours after the massacre, 
as Amish parents still waited in a nearby barn for word about whether their daughters had survived. An Amish man named Henry arrived at the Roberts home with a message. The families did not see the couple as an enemy. Rather, they saw them as parents who were grieving the loss of their child too. Henry put his hand on the shoulder of Terry Roberts' husband and called him a friend. The world watched in amazement as on the day of their son's funeral, nearly 30 Amish men and women, some the parents of the victims, came to the cemetery and formed a wall to block out media cameras. Parents whose daughters had died at the hand of their son approached the couple after the burial and offered condolences for their loss. Then just four weeks after the shooting, the couple was invited to meet with all the families in a local fire hall. One mother held Robert's gaze as both women's eyes blurred with tears. They were all grieving. They were all struggling to make sense of the senseless. But the Amish did more than forgive the couple. They embraced them as part of their community. When Roberts underwent treatment for stage four breast cancer in December, one of the girls who survived the massacre helped clean her home before she returned from the hospital. A large yellow bus arrived at her home around Christmas and Amish children piled inside to sing her Christmas carols. Radical forgiveness their commitment to living out their faith in such a radical and unnatural and counter-cultural way was just breathtaking. It was silencing. Even Christians were shocked at that kind of forgiveness. It was humbling to see a community of faith living out their faith that radically. And, and it's in a similar fashion, maybe to a lesser degree because of the circumstances, but it's in a similar fashion. I'm humbled every time I come to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and read about the witness of the Christian community in the earliest days of the church. Their commitment to one another in the name of Christ is humbling to those of us who call ourselves Christians today. And so let's look there now and see what lessons we can draw and apply from the example of the early church there in Acts 2, 42 through 47. And I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 42, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we come once again to that time in the service where we open the scriptures, expecting to hear from you in it. We do believe, Lord, that the Bible is your word. And then when it's preached, your voice is heard. You know all the things that we bring today. You know all the things that we need to hear. You know the plans you have for us as a congregation and as a community of faith. We need to hear you speak and we need to be moved by what we hear. And so we ask, as always, that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and for our good. And Lord, would you move me out of the way? As you use my mouth, I sit needing to hear what it is I'm going to say. Would you do that as only you can? In the name of Jesus, amen. And you may be seated. Over the last couple of weeks, we have uh, looked at Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. So following the crucifixion of Jesus, he appeared, he was resurrected, of course. He appeared and spent time with his disciples over a period of about 40 days, teaching them about the things concerning the kingdom of God. And there were about 120 of them at that time. 120 believers still remaining true to their faith in him. And, and at Jesus' instructions, they were waiting in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit that he said you'll receive not many days from now. And then on the day of Pentecost, you'll remember, as chapter 2 opens, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And he comes like the sound of a mighty rushing wind or like a violent wind. And tongues of fire appear to them and are distributed to each one of them. Each one is filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. And it says that at that sound, some combination perhaps of the sound of the Holy Spirit coming like a mighty rushing wind, the sound of these 120 uh, believers praising God in, in, uh, in languages that all these people are understood. But it draws a huge crowd who come to see what's going on. And it's, it's on that occasion that Peter preaches the first post-resurrection gospel sermon. We've looked at that again the last two weeks. And it says at the very end of that passage that around 3,000 people were added to their number on that day. Their church went from about 100 to about 3,100 in a day. Imagine, it's just, so imagine, you know, if there were 9,000 people who showed up here next week. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, we'll take it, Lord, we'll figure it out. Um, but it was that sort of explosive growth that happened and, and this influx of people coming to faith in Christ. And they immediately came together and formed this kind of community 
that we just read about. Which again, I don't know how closely you paid attention as we were reading it. We'll pay close attention as we go through it. But it's humbling to me that, that new believers would just very organically live out their faith with that level of commitment. And so we want to look this morning at three characteristics of the first century church as a Christian community that our church should want to imitate. Three characteristics, that is the breadth of their devotion, the selflessness of their love, and the attractiveness of their lifestyle. And so let's look first at the breadth of their devotion. And I'll spend most of my time here this morning um, on this first point because it, it so encapsulates or sums up um, all that's here. But look in verse 42. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The word translated devoted here carries the idea of constancy and persistence. And that's why in the, in the New American Standard, if you have that translation, it says they were continually devoting themselves to these things. In the King James, or the New King James, it says they continued steadfastly in all of these things. These were continual, ongoing activities that they persevered in, devoted in that respect. But it's not only that fact, not only that constancy and persistence that is of interest to you, but, but, but the scope of the activities to which they were devoted on that level. And so first it says they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. This would, this would essentially be what we have in the Gospels and the Epistles, the New Testament Scriptures, the teaching that Jesus has handed down to the apostles, the things that um, they learned as they walked through life and ministry with him over those three years, the things that he taught them and illuminated their understanding about in that 40-day period after his resurrection. But they're written down for us in the Gospels and in the Epistles. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 says that Jesus told them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so the apostles had just baptized. 3,000 people, and now they're teaching them. The, 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 the believers are devoted to that teaching, and teaching them what? Well, Jesus said, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Not just teach them all that I commanded you. Teach them to observe it. So they first need to know what that is, right? Right? Just content, teach them what and explain what that is that he commanded and then teach them how to observe it. Uh, you may recall in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul says the scriptures, again, which would be the apostles' teaching handed down to us, the scriptures are inspired by God and are profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The inspired scriptures and the teaching of them has an end in view, and it is to equip us 
for the work that God has. It's a matter not only of what we know, but what we do with what we know. And the, and the first century church here is devoted to the apostles' teaching, not only to know what that is, but to observe it. And again, we see them walking out their faith immediately in the passage that we just read. And so they're devoted to the apostles' teaching and also to fellowship, it says. For those who have been students of the Bible, you're probably familiar with the Greek term here for fellowship. It's koinonia. If you haven't uh, heard that word, you learned a new word in church today, koinonia. One you'll probably never use unless you're among church people. But it literally means sharing in common. In fact, down below in verse 44, where it says they had all things in common, that word is koina. You hear the same root, right? Koina and koinonia. This, this sort of fellowship is a, is a sharing in common. This is the only occurrence of the word in the book of Acts. Paul uses it, I think, about 14 times in a really broad sense and a broad application to our life of faith. And so he says things like the fellowship of his son, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 13, 13. He refers to the fellowship in the gospel that we have in Philippians 1, 5, and the fellowship of faith in Philippians, or sorry, Philemon 6. So it's, it has a, a broad sense of meaning, but it is more, listen, New Testament fellowship is more than just participating in occasional social gatherings together. Okay, just because it involves eating fried chicken in the fellowship hall doesn't make it New Testament fellowship. You know, just because you brought a casserole to it in the fellowship hall doesn't make it New Testament fellowship. Fellowship in the New Testament has this connotation of sharing life in common, being joined together. And in fact, I read that in the broader Greek culture, outside of the New Testament, the word koinonia is sometimes used to refer to the sort of mutuality of marriage. Now, let that sink in. That the sort of mutuality that we bring to marriage, the sort of give and take, the, the, the kinds of sacrifices we make, the fact that we take the good with the bad, and sometimes there's much more bad, the, 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 the fact that we... Uh, we, we pledge to be there for better or for worse, and it seems a whole lot worse for a while, and so on. But the marriage we remain committed to because there is this, this joining together, this mutuality that we assume is part of the covenant relationship. And koinonia, fellowship among believers in the church has that sort of sharing in common in view. That alone humbles me. And I could stop right there and just kneel down at this altar and pray God would do something with me in that respect. But so not only are they devoted, though, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, but the breaking of bread here. And this may refer just broadly to eating meals together, as it mentions in verse 
46, or it may refer to taking the Lord's Supper together in the context of a larger meal, which they did in the first century. But either way, they continued steadfastly. Think about that. All of these things. I'm speaking of the breadth of their devotion because they are continuing steadfastly, committed to, persisting in, constant in. All of these things, including breaking bread together. Is it true for you that it's often much easier not to share our lives together in someone else's home or have somebody into your own home just because you're already overscheduled or just because you don't feel like it, you know? Just because, you know, I I was nice to people all day long. Right? I just, I held it together all day. Don't expect me to be nice tonight, too, you know? I mean, there are all kinds of reasons, in other words, why it might be easier not to break bread together in our homes. And they were doing it steadfastly, continually. This is part of the life together that they lived as a community of faith. Devoted to that. And you know, it, it's, it's hard sometimes even to just get our own family at the table. Is that true for your family or am I just confessing? You know, it's hard sometimes even to get your family together at the table, but you know it's worth the effort, right? Well, part of the message here is that the first century church is very much like a family and has that kind of devotion to one another. So finally, it says they're devoted to prayer. And up to, up to this point, we might be doing okay if we were to complete a self-evaluation form on this. You know, how devoted are you to the following things? And it says, you know, very devoted, moderately devoted, slightly devoted, not at all devoted. You know, one of those surveys on SurveyMonkey, if we self, you know, did a self-rating form, We might come out okay, and we we probably rate higher on some areas than others. My guess is that relatively few of us would rate very high in our devotion to prayer. We're truly devoted, constant in it, continuing steadfastly in it. What about you? Would you say those things of yourself? It's probably an area most of us would say we could improve on. If we did the, if we did the evaluation form on these, these areas, that would probably be the one that's the opportunity for improvement that we decide we want to work on. And so how do you do that? How, how does it even, what does it look like to be devoted to prayer, to be constant in prayer as Romans 12, 12 commands us? Well, John Piper uses an acronym here that, that I think is very helpful and just sort of thinking about the way to approach prayer in a way that might constitute devotion to it or constancy in it and that sort of thing. And the acronym is FADES, F-A-D-E-S, if you're taking notes. If you're not, you won't remember this a minute and a half from now, so it doesn't really matter. FADES, so the F is for free and formed. He basically sets sets up two pairs of opposites with each one of these, okay? So he's saying that balanced prayer 
uh, would, would be some of each of these things. So F is free and formed, he calls it. Free just meaning the way that we often pray. So if I said, John, would you mind opening our meeting in prayer? John didn't know I was going to ask him that. And so John just prays. It wasn't prepared. It wasn't rehearsed. He just prays freely to open the meeting as we're led, as we have need and so forth, free. Formed, he refers to in just the structured kind of a patterned ways. The Lord's Prayer, for example, would be formed or a patterned prayer. Praying the scriptures. Uh, praying, you know, it, sort of beginning with something like the Book of Common Prayer or some other prayer guide that, that has structured set prayers in that. He's just saying um, some free, free prayers, some formed prayers uh, keep a balance there. The A is for alone and assembled. We need to pray privately, but we also need to pray corporately. There is, there is great value in praying together. Many of you uh, probably do that for some extended time in a small group or some other little sub-community you're part of. We have a prayer meeting here on Wednesday nights um, that may I just be frank in saying it is poorly attended uh, we'd love for this message to inspire you to be there Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. But it's an opportunity we pray corporately. There's Tuesday morning healing services where we pray specifically for people to be healed. We have opportunities to do that. But he's saying um, a, a devoted prayer life would involve uh, praying alone, but also praying assembled, privately and corporately. The D is for desperate and delighted. So we pray sometimes when we are desperate for God to answer. You know those times where you pray because you can't think of anything else to do but pray. Because all you are thinking about is the thing that is weighing you down. It is on your mind every second that something else is not occupying. You come to God desperate in prayer. And that's a really fine time to pray. But he says we ought to come delighted as well when things are so wonderful that we're just filled with praise and overflowing with praise and that our prayers would just express that, desperate and delighted. The E is for explosive and extended. By this, he just means short and long, but he needed to make the word spell fades, and so that didn't work. And so he used explosive and extended, but that is some, you know, a short burst of prayer is, is a perfectly good and meaningful prayer. Uh, sometimes right before you walk into a meeting with somebody, you're getting ready to have a conversation you don't want to have. It's going to be a difficult one, but you're wanting to be gracious. You're wanting to bring the light of Jesus to that meeting. And right before you open the door, you just offer a burst of prayer, just an explosive short prayer. But obviously we want to pray sometimes where they are more extended. And that means that we probably need our prayer life to include the S too, which is spontaneous and scheduled. That sometimes we just pray spontaneously. We, you, you drive by, you see an accident on the road. Some, you want to pray for that person. You talk to somebody and they tell you about something going on in their life and so you just pray spontaneously. Something comes to mind privately, you just pray spontaneously. But we also ought, if we're going to have a devoted prayer life, it ought to include scheduled times of prayer as well. 
because you probably know as well as I, there's just about nothing easier in the world not to do than to pray, right? It, it, that it is easy for your good intentions to never lead you anywhere than when you have the good intention of praying but don't carve out time to do it. It's just that way. And if we want to have a life that's devoted to prayer, we do well not only for it to be spontaneous, but to be scheduled. And there is something in us, I think as evangelicals, and especially as spirit-filled evangelicals, to really resonate with the things like free and spontaneous, right, in our prayers. The idea of formed and scheduled and structured, maybe a little less so. Um, But it is a really healthy balance in our prayer life to have some of Uh, both sides of that, that we remain spontaneous and scheduled. And so the breadth of their devotion here, this this church's devotion to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers um, is admirable and humbling because, you know, many of us might be devoted to one or two of those things, right? We might say we're devoted to the to the scriptures, the study of the scriptures, the apostles' teaching, others who are really devoted to fellowship. There are people in our, in our midst who really could teach us something about investing in the lives of other people. But the, the breadth of their devotion is something worth imitating, and so is the selflessness of their love, as I said. So we have the, the, uh, the scope of their devotion or the breadth of their devotion, and second, the selflessness of their love. Look at verse Verses 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. As we'll see later in chapter 4, this practice of sharing things in common this way remained in place for some time in the Jerusalem church. So the financial need of Jerusalem, we, uh, the church in Jerusalem, we know, was ongoing and, and also exceptional. Um, we, we read about Paul taking a collection, receiving a collection from churches in Macedonia and Corinth for the church in Jerusalem. Their hardship financially for any number of reasons was ongoing and exceptional. But notice that this seems to be an activity that's just generated spontaneously out of the hearts of people who have been gripped by the grace of God. And that's why I say this humbles the daylights out of me every time I read it. Because it's not done under compulsion. There's no suggestion they're commanded to do this. In fact, in the end of chapter 4 and and into chapter 5, we'll see actually quite the contrary. There's nobody nobody forcing anybody to do this. They don't look to the the apostles to sort of bring some muscle to it, to to compel people to sell their property and distribute the proceeds. They just, out of the love of God toward them, they just love others in this way. The church doesn't compel them. And, and, And it certainly cannot be used to make an argument for communism or socialism. This is a little bit parenthetical, but it's used that way sometimes as as if the New Testament model would lead us to communism or socialism. But um, let's just mark this down, that godless government cannot reproduce by compulsion 
what the heart of God's people is supposed to produce through compassion. A godless government, which most of them are, uh, and certainly communism is just ideologically, if you know anything about Marxism. But godless government cannot reproduce by compulsion what the heart of God's people is supposed to produce by compassion. That's just a, a non-starter there, okay? It's not compelled in the church. It's not intending for this to be used to be compelled by the government. It's just mutual care of people's needs. So it, it, it can't be leveraged in, in the ways I just mentioned, but it certainly ought to challenge our notions of radical American individualism, as I mentioned before. Because, you know, it's not just that they shared their possessions. It says that they were together. Do you see that word? It just says they were together. And this, this word has the idea of just occupying the same space together frequently. They just spent lots of time together in the same place. Some of us would prefer to live our Christian lives with the sort of interpersonal commitment of a house cat, you know, about as socially invested as a cat. Now, I don't know many cats. I could just tell you about our cat, okay? I'm generalizing here. Maybe you've got an exceptional cat. But my experience with cats is that they might even sort of run up to you as if they're glad to see you and want to be with you. And then when you reach down to pet them, they just kind of turn away and uh, let you, you know, brush by them. But just, oh, don't, don't, don't go too far here, you know? Not like I wanted to snuggle up to you. I'm just going to let you reach out and touch me. You know, there are people who like to engage in the life of the church with that level of interpersonal commitment. Just show up on Sunday. I'll let you reach out and touch me. Don't get too close. I don't want to cozy up to you. I just want to sing some songs and hear a sermon and go home to house cat sort of community. It's not much of a community. And, and you know, it's, it seems to me that it is virtually impossible virtually impossible to imitate this kind of community that's described in Acts 2 here if our only connection to the body of Christ is Sunday morning. And if that's, if that, if that's your only point of connection right now, keep making it by all means. Don't be discouraged by that. And, uh, and I'm, I'm certainly not going to pass judgment on you. I've got a little bit of house cat in me too, Okay. But it seems to me that in order to really live that out, we've got to be connected in some kind of small group, missional community, some smaller group of people uh, where there's informality to it, um, dialogue, give and take, listening to one another, sharing meals together, sharing life together. If we're going to live the kind of community that the first century church did, we need to go deeper in our relationships. And then finally, we see uh, worthy of imitation or that we would desire to see imitated in us is just the attractiveness of their lifestyle. We see in verse 47, it says, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Now, as we've already considered, it, it's obviously the proclamation of the gospel 
that God uses to call people to faith in Christ. As I said before, the gospel is good news, not a good example. And it's not good advice either. It's good news of what God has done. And that's got to be proclaimed. That is the means by which God calls people to himself. And yet, the life of this Christian community was lived in so, such an admirable way that it earned them favor with all the people, drew people close enough to hear the gospel and respond to it, such that new believers were being added to their number daily. As Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And this church this community loved each other so radically that they had favor even among the people who didn't favor them. <laughs> even among the, the people who would come to despise them and persecute them not too long later. But their love was compelling. Their lifestyle itself as a community bore witness to the grace of Jesus. The Washington Post article I read from earlier was published in October, on October 1st, 2016, 10 years after that shooting. The Amish community was still living out their radical forgiveness as they continued to embrace this couple as part of their community. And the Washington Post and its readers had not forgotten. On the 10-year anniversary of that school shooting, they weren't talking about the Second Amendment and gun control. They were talking about the stunning forgiveness of a community that forgave immediately and continued living out forgiveness. And it occurs to me, October 16th, sorry, October 2016 was one month before the last presidential election. And much of the evangelical community was communicating a message to the world, uh, but it was not one of grace and forgiveness as we are embroiled in political controversy and debate once again. While the message they're reminded of in October of 2016 uh, that was that the Amish community was radically forgiving, that much of the evangelical community has contempt for liberals. That was a lot of the message we were probably conveying in October 2016. And it's arresting when you consider um, how lasting, how lasting is the memory of a community of faith that loves exceptionally well and in an abiding kind of way. It was true not only of the Amish people here, it was of the first century church, and we would hope that would be true of us as well, that our that our broad-scale devotion to the life of faith, that our love for one another 
would all bear witness in a way that is compelling to the community that we're a part of. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we thank you for your uh, great love for us that has brought us into your family, that we share in common the fellowship of the saints, that, Lord, that that is even what the church is, an assembly of those who have been redeemed who share that in common, and we thank you for it. We thank you, Lord, for the good work you have done in the hearts of our congregation, and we, uh, we are a, a loving congregation. Lord, I've said so many times how thankful I am for the genuine love that this church pours out toward other people. Lord, would you challenge us, convict us, move us to do so more and more, to do so even in radical, selfless and sacrificial ways and in a way that would have an irresistible and compelling testimony to those outside because of the love of God that we tell about is demonstrated in the love that we show to one another. Would you make it so in our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.